This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show, Jake Clark. Now, Jake was my guest on episode 63. He is a former FBI, Secret Service, and LAPD member, but also the founder of Save a Warrior. Now, since that conversation, many of my guests on the show have been through his program, took them from near suicide to the incredible growth that they found following. I also credit Jake with educating me as the importance of childhood trauma when it comes to PTSD, anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation in the uniform professions. Now, I want to preface this conversation by saying this is an extremely raw conversation. Jake himself has been through a metamorphosis since the last time we spoke. So we explore some very adult areas with very adult language. So if you do have family members, young family members around, consider this a warning. That being said, it is these very raw conversations that truly burrow to the genesis, the, the core of what causes so much pain in the world. So this is an invaluable conversation. Before we get to this amazing interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Jake Clark. Enjoy. Well, Jake, I want to say, firstly, welcome back, and secondly, as a precursor, our last conversation, which was episode 63, so we're talking four years ago now, literally revolutionized the way I looked at a lot of the mental health elements within myself, but also truly steered my questions from there on forward, you know, as far as you enlightening me and, and the people that listened on the elements of childhood trauma, the, the thing beneath the thing, as you say. So... I want to thank you firstly for the power and the impact that your first conversation had, obviously, and what you're doing with Saw. But secondly, to welcome you back. Um, and I can't wait to hear, you know, the next four years and what they've brought. Thank you, James. It's really nice to be back. And thank you to everyone who's listening out there and supporting James's platform. Um, I'm asked to do a fair amount of interviews, but I don't know that I've ever done one that I recall where we went so deep and um, we covered so much ground because you're so gracious about, you know, letting the conversation um, kind of find its, its oxygen and, and you really let it breathe. And, you know, I was sharing with you before we started, you know, I was at a place where I probably should have been in a facility at that time. And I'm not saying that to make light of it. I was just in a really um, vulnerable place, getting divorced, going through a transition but it was it was 
very Dickensian in the sense it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And so much has been discovered since then, uh, personally, professionally, organizationally, you know, spiritually, what have you. Because since you and I have last connected in this way, we've run an additional 131 cohorts. So we're talking probably another 1,300 participants at Sable Warrior. But one of the things, too, that is occurring to me as I'm sharing this is there's now a line out the door for firefighters. What's exploded more than in, in, than any other demographic that we serve are sworn firefighters from around the country who have been um, asking for our services, so much so that the Ohio Association of Professional Firefighters just passed a resolution unanimously for a, an assessment um, as part of union dues to uh, pay to pay Save a Warrior to offset the cost because we're just overwhelmed here in the state of Ohio with requests for firefighters. One agency alone, the uh, Division of Fire for the City of Columbus, in the last two and a half years, more than 80 of their sworn firefighters have come to a suicide prevention program really that that's 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 really telling and another agency out west um palm springs it's it's unbelievable how certain agencies find out about us and people decide that they're done suffering and they're not just gonna you know kind of bite down on it and try to you know white knuckle their way through it but firefighters you know, if all we wanted to do was serve firefighters, we could actually refit this entire organization to do that. That's how much, that's how big the demand has grown. Well, it's been interesting as well, having so many different people on the show um, that have gone through and some of my friends, you know, that haven't been on the show. You know, we've got Matt, we've got Justin, uh, Jared, but then also people like Lisa Lule and Todd Robinson was on the show too. So, you know, you've got some people that are very embedded in our profession specifically, and then you've got some civilians that were kind of in the right place at the right time that also got to through, got to go through. And hearing each and every one of their account and obviously there's varying experiences and, and varying journeys that they took after the week with you guys but over and over and over again it was the same response this is you know the most empowering thing i i found things you know the the things beneath the things that i didn't realize were you know the nucleus of how i was feeling or what i was struggling with um so you know i have i've heard it just not only from firefighters, but police officers and, and lawyers and, and filmmakers, which has been incredible. You know, if we if we marketed and advertised, we we would it would look like the end of the movie Field of Dreams, where all the cars are driving to the ball field as dusk is turning to evening. And um but but, you know, be careful what you wish for. I would tell you that every one of the folks that you mentioned would probably share with you that no, nothing prepares you to sit in the seat at Save a Warrior. And we, we, we don't let you off the hook. There's no, there's no cheap seats. They're all courtside. And you are going to come face to face with the scariest parts of yourself, the scariest moments of your life. And what's interesting is that when somebody is in what we call the container, the 72-hour experience, and it's very urgent, there is a game clock that is counting down from 72 hours to absolute zero, 
there there is a something that is compelled inside of a person when you're in the initiatory space and then at some point it turns to an intervention and one comes face to face with one's greatest fear and at the same time experiences such profound breakthrough um that precipitates a transformation that we've since you know a, formally created a program called the 500 day plan to clarify that experience because the people that we serve the thing that we all have in common is we all had a childhood and we all have good memories from childhood and to some extent we have bad memories of childhood and some people have horrific memories of childhood and sometimes those memories are buried and come back while people are with us and we like to say that we don't open any doors. We don't have the resources to close. What we're seeing in the culture today at large is, you know, we're a nation that's just about 250 years old officially. And we will be, you know, in 2026, we are still a very, very young nation. And what is happening today in the resetting of COVID and getting back to some normalcy, a major political shift when you go from one political party to another and all the, the attendant second, third, and fourth order effects is people are really angry, scared, sad, and you're seeing the culture reveal itself for what it is and what it isn't. Um, another mass shooting in an elementary school that takes people back a decade ago to the horror of Sandy Hook. And you have a culture that is just a raw nerve. And when it lacks a quality of its own moral compass, it, it can feel like what the hell is going on. And, and people are very, very uncertain. Markets are uncertain. Organizations are uncertain. Corporations are uncertain. Communities are uncertain. Faith is uncertain. And I think we're going to look back in our history a hundred years from now, 200 years from now. And this will be, this was the age of uncertainty. We we're at a time where we know more about ourselves. We know more about our interiority. We know more about our neurobiology than we have ever known. You and I are talking across smartphones. I'm on a smartphone. We are drowning in information and star for wisdom. So there is this constant seeking of wisdom. And I think we're going to learn very painfully that you do not get wisdom from memes you get relief and you know relief is temporary we like to say the cure is painful that comes from anthony Demello, who wrote a book called awareness but we're, we're struggling to find this through line of a spirituality that works in our everyday lives and um i'm i'm fortunate to be coming out my own dark night of the soul that started about four and a half years ago when I was going through a divorce and, and what it really came down to is, you know, my, my ex-wife said to me at the time, she goes, listen, and it was so profound because it was such a bitter breakup and it went very quickly. You know, I didn't contest anything. She was becoming a CEO uh, for a, a big insurance company in the Midwest. And we had worked diligently 
to set her up for this success. And I thought we were a partnership. And she said, when we were splitting up, because I've had my own personal struggle, she goes, listen, either give up the behavior or stop being ashamed of it. Boom. Bright light moment. I never knew that the option to not be ashamed of who I was, was an option. That was revelatory, revelatory for me. And that was a moment that forever changed my life because I said, listen, I'm either going to be who I am and have it square with who I say I am, or I'm going to constantly be living in some way a parallel life. And this was risky for me because I had to be willing to share in a general way with people with whom I produce experiences for, listen, you're not alone. I'm not just the hair club president. I'm also a client. And some of your older listeners will get a chuckle out of that analogy. Some people will have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. But I have struggled with mental, I have struggled with a sense of identity. And I'm not just speaking sexually. I mean, in every area of my life, you know, I identify as a straight heterosexual male, but I've identified with, you know, parts of that area of my life since I was a little boy, that was a, a very traumatic part of my upbringing. And most of the people I see do as well. So I'll tell you, 100% of the women who come to Save a Warrior have sexual trauma in their upbringing or in their adult life, 85% of the men, 85% of the men. And I've been asked during some places I've been invited to speak not to talk about that. And I agree to that. And then this first thing I talk about when I open my mouth, expecting them to throw me out of the room because I'm a beggar. Um, everything we do is at the um, generosity of the people who financially support our work. We're very, very lucky. And ever since I started being honest with myself and the people closest to me about what's going on for me internally and not keeping secrets from them about how I, I am or I'm not living my life everything transformed since I last talked to you. But the pain of remaining the same was greater than the pain of changing. And I knew I needed to change my life. Now, when I got sober 19 and a half years ago in recovery, someone shared, if you're new here, the only thing you have to change about your life is everything. And that's the good news. That was the scariest declaration I'd ever heard come out of another human being because I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm 36 turning 37. There's no way I can change everything about my life. That's not true. I've come to understand 19 and a half years later, we can change. We do change. If we do something, things change. If we do nothing, things change. Everything changes. Change happens whether we like it or not. And I think I'm finding in my mid fifties ways to be with that accept that without resignation, without cynicism, without bitterness, without sarcasm. But now it, it's an issue when you come to save a warrior. We have an incredibly altered conversation than the one you and I had four and a half years ago. The 120 hour experience is now down to 72 hours. And, you know, I'm sure we can get more into that as the conversation goes on. And I want to stop talking because, you know, I don't want to overwhelm your listener. I, I want them to get value out of this because I'm certain that there's somebody who's going to listen to this conversation between you and I, they're going to go onto the website and they're going to hit that submit button. So I'll kick it back to you, James. 
Well, I mean, firstly, carry on as long as you want. There's no no need to come back to me. But, you know, that being said, what you touched on kind of resonated with me a little bit as well. I think that once we start becoming cognizant of a lot of these healing journeys that we have to go on, and we're aware of our own mental health, and we start addressing some of the things early in our life, and maybe some of the unhealthy coping mechanisms. One thing that I found is subconsciously, there's an expectation to go back to normal. And I'm doing air quotes here. And one of the the most demoralizing, frustrating things is the inability to return to normal. And I had a kind of aha moment not too long ago. I was like, dude, you spent 14 years in the fire service. You know, you've been a martial artist, punched in the face over and over again, done stunts and all these different things. As I emerged out of that other side, and I'm older, like I've never been 48 before. This is my first time, you know? So I almost find that that in itself is a stressor of you project what you think is normal and then you're constantly trying to get to there and constantly disappointed rather than submitting to the fact that whatever whatever is the result of all these good practices that you're doing that is normal and you're not you're not going to be that innocent 18 year old after spending a life in the military or police or fire because you have been forged in a very different crucible than the parallel path you would have taken had you never entered those professions yeah you know here's the thing if you're listening you're either very curious you're passing the time driving from point a to point b or podcasts or you know just your thing this is your jam this is how you consume conversations to fill up some of the white space of your life you know you're in kind of one of those three camps but if you are struggling um with your own sense of well-being what what you know what you know that you know and maybe you have varying degrees of disclosure with this with the people in your life is your your life is dishonest and the good news is James and I aren't going to tell anyone you know it's just between the three of us um but where your life leads you the reason we struggle with so much mental wellness in this culture is we have a we have a part of us that is incredibly dishonest because of what we have not done to process, mourn, grieve, complete our past. And, you know, you're either listening to us now, you're fixated on a memory, or you're living in, in your imagination, you know, past, present, or future. But if you're here right now, if you're really dialed in and listening and focusing, in these moments you feel safe because you're here. And you are not who you are is not what's going on for you internally. Now, as soon as we finish this conversation, you're back to the next thing. Life presents a gap for you and you're going one of two places. If you live in this culture, you're going to ruminate over the past and you're going to be prone to depression or you're going to think about what you still want to get from life, get out of life, render from life and and perhaps fixate on how that's not going to happen for you and you are going to be anxious and or you're going to have both and you're going to struggle between depression and anxiety because the way your life is organized is it's not allowing you most of the time a preponderance of the time 51 percent of the time to have a real honest relationship with yourself and the people closest to you and that's where the struggle comes in is we are dishonest about our dishonesty and 
what we can't factor in is the drift in our life where we altered our course a long time ago because we have never found a way to be with the things in life with which we cannot be. Now, at Save a Warrior, we caveat and say we talk funny. We speak in a proto-Indo-European derivative of a language symbolically that's more than 5,000 years old. There were some really, really smart people who lived in a time when languages were beginning to diffuse on earth that were steeped in an ancient philosophical way of being. Today, if you're listening, you live in the manifestation you live in the manifestation of self, a psychological assessment, and here's your interiority. I don't like, I don't want, I'm not enough, there's not enough, I'm not going to get what I want, I can't keep what I have, and a hundred other forms of self-centered fear. That is a very, very dishonest, a profoundly dishonest way to live one's life because it's not in reality. It is in non-reality. And until we get complete with these things, get complete with the source of our relationships in life, only then can we declare ourselves as the possibility of possibility, live in an adult philosophy versus a child psychology, and begin to invent, create, call forth, and generate our own identity and way in the world. And a lot of what we struggle with in life tends to then clear itself up in the normal course of living. Why? Because now I have a context in my life to hold the things that I'm struggling with versus a condition. And now life becomes one based on choice and one where discernment is readily available because all of the wisdom is already always inside of us. It's getting all of that stuff out of the way so that we can find ourselves in that unified field, in that collective consciousness, in that collective unconsciousness, where we intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. So maybe today's theme is, why the hell is this guy telling me I'm dishonest? Well, because I'm not transacting with you, and I'm not in any position to get something out of you. If you're listening, I'm here to I'm here rooting for you. I just want things for you. I want you to have a rich, full life and experience freedom, power, and full self-expression, joy, fulfillment, what have you. And that is absolutely possible, even in what can be feeling like some of the darkest times of your life. Well, kind of bringing your story into it then. So, like I said, about four-ish years ago, we had this conversation. Um, I don't know if we talked about you going through divorce or not. I can't remember now. Um, but, I mean, I went through a divorce myself, a pretty pretty shitty divorce, to be completely honest. Um, and, you know, was was another compounding element to all the, the issues I was going through at the time. So, walk me through that last four years, the highs, the lows, and, and the lessons that you pulled out of it. What I've come to understand, look, you know, I've known some of these things for a long time, but when we want something from people, places, and things, our default setting is dishonesty. We do not communicate in such a way to directly confront what it is that we want because relationships are not designed to get things, but they're set up that way in our culture about people having a laundry list of, of what they want from a relationship, what they're willing to accept, and, and what they won't tolerate. And, and none of that is true. 
again, these are cultural shackles that are passed on to us from people themselves, our parents primarily, our families of origin, who, um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, again, you probably came from uh, an upbringing where your parents fought and bickered over money and things that you weren't privy to in their relationship. And it left you with this idea of what relationships look like that haven't that, you know, what normal feels like to you is not in reality because we are not sent here to try to get things. We're actually here to um, our purpose is really to contribute to the lives of others. And, you know, Immanuel Kant once said, I should always strive for the greater good, even if the lesser good should be my own. I heard that in the FBI Academy. I'm like, that's the sucker's bet. I should always strive for the greater good, even if the lesser good should be my own. What about me? When do I get mine? But if you if you look into the, you know, the meta space of what Kant is saying, he's giving you, he's giving us a prescription for how to live one's life where one's life is organized around contribution. Like your the whole context of your radio show, your podcast, James, is to add value to the quality of of, of the listener's life. It's, it's selfless. It, it for it's, tra- it's, it's devoid of transaction. It is <clears throat> spiritual in the sense that you're bringing down your own significance and, and considering the significance of others and them finding, you know, solutions to whatever it is that's challenging them. That's not how we operate with people. We operate in, in a very juvenile way where we take turns using one another, leveraging, you know, for power versus, you know, finding a way to be in places with people where flow states occur and we are in a natural exchange with one another. And that's because we don't know how to think. We think we think. We don't think. Thinking us is. There's a thing called it. It thinks and we have the thoughts that it thinks and it runs and ruins our lives. And we have these positions that we've sworn to uphold. We have uh, a suite of benefits and services that people in everyday life would, would line up for. And we're walking around pretending that we're not pretending that everything is okay. And you're seeing profound dissatisfaction among people in sworn first responder service and they don't know why. They just know that they're suffering. They don't know the source of their suffering. They can't get down to it because the traditional medical models, the peer support groups, are not allowing them to get to these non-shareable problems that are very private, that are very personal, that are killing people. And this is why you see this mental health pandemic, not only in first responders, but in the culture at large, because we have never as a culture, other than in 12-step groups, especially, you know, some of the original 12-step communities that don't advertise, that don't market, that are predicated upon attraction rather than promotion. The only place I've ever seen people be honest in life is three places. The mental institutions where I visited my mother as a kid because mentally ill, psychotic people have no filter. Secondly, Skid Row as a rookie cop on the LAPD. And thirdly, in 12-step meetings that I've been a part of for the last 24 and a half years. Now, I say I've been sober 19 and a half years, but I've been in 12-step 24 and a half years. I shopped a lot of rooms 
before I found the conversations that worked for me because I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me. Am I a sex addict? Am I a sex and love addict? Am I codependent? And am, am I an alcoholic? Am I someone who belongs in Al-Anon for the drinking uh, issues of my father and people closest to me? Is it adult children of alcoholics slash dysfunctional families? You know, what? what is the thing under the thing for me ultimately? What, why am I so lost about, you know, you're like Goldilocksing programs. So listen, if you're out there, I've done a lot of this research for you because you have to eat, you have to urinate and defecate. You have to sleep. You probably want to have a sex life and have an enjoyable sex life. So basically human beings do 10 things. We eat, we pee, we poop, we have sex, we ejaculate, we tell stories, we listen to stories, we grieve, and we love. That's it. I think I ticked off nine or 10 things. If you're a human being, those are the only things that you actually do and or that you do as a biological entity. But 20% of your life is storytelling and story listening. And this is where the richness of our life starts to come together. That For that to be satisfying and fulfilling, we require safe relationships in safe places with safe people to share our non-shareable problems so that we can we can um, expose them, process them, mourn them, and grieve them, and disappear them. This is not about um, – this is as much about transformation as it, as, it, as it is about disappearance. And, you know, I invite you, if you're listening today, to really dump out your cup for the next couple of hours as, as James and I start to drill down into this because – this will impact the quality of your life in a hard hitting, breaking open kind of way that this can be a transformative experience for you. Just being part of your having gotten for what it is you can take away from this conversation today. If you are done suffering, if you're not done suffering, we're just we're helping you get to work or drive home from work or whatever you, you're moving from A to B today. As you're listening to us, but we're going to have a conversation about some things about where you are in your life. And this is going to truly transform the quality of your life today. This I promise you. So before we get to childhood, because I want to definitely revisit that. I mean, that was such an incredible eye-opening you know, philosophy that I just wasn't considering up to that point. But storytelling, when you're talking about storytelling, obviously that is the goal of this podcast and, you know, 618 episodes are sitting out there now as we record this. And I myself feel the connection, feel the healing from all these, you know, these conversations. And don't get me wrong, also sometimes they can be very draining in a very positive way. You just give a lot when you listen to someone, you know, pouring their heart out. And it's, you know, the, the one I just put out today was a, a firefighter widow, lost her husband, Fernando, to cancer, you know. So there's there's a plus and a minus. But when I think of what works out there at the moment, whether it's on the television, whether it's on social media, it's the polar opposite of storytelling. The shorter and flashier it is, the more attractive it is, the more the algorithms will, will you know, make it popular. And you do a 60-minute, 
post or, you know, conversation, you put it out there, it's not going to do very well. So, you know, our society has found in its way, in my opinion, in a lot of circles to take storytelling away. So when you look back with all the reading and all the, you know, the education that you have, when did we start losing storytelling and how do we put that back, not just in Save a Warrior, but in everyday culture? You know, I've been very blessed to have had people come into my life that were, that introduced me to historical storytelling, whether it were, whether it, they had a background in Buddhism, Native American studies, um, Hindu culture, which are some of the most ancient storytellers that, that presage the Greeks, Greek philosophy, yada, 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 on and on. When did we lose storytelling? Joseph Campbell, one of the most incredible contemporary mythologists whose work, you know, still resonates today. Um, When our significance, when our desire to be significant, you know, that's kind of when the ribbon turned over is in the era of celebrity in this culture. But even before that, you know, this is the far end extension of the industrial revolution. And now we're in this technological era where we're more interested in telling our story than hearing someone else's story. So what, whenever we can trace that back to beyond our need to survive and meet our basic needs, at some point, the ritual of, um, and, and the ceremonies of storytelling, whenever they were lost, probably in the last 50 to 100 years is when we started to drift as a culture and lose our way and lose our sense of uh, this sense of community. And community is nothing but common plus humanity. We went from a culture of being community to having this identity of shame and began to reverse course and cover up this shame with significance, which leads to our denial of our denial. And rather than being community, we live in varying stages of numbness. So we have to numb the cover up and denial of our identity as shame. And our shame is our fear of being disconnected. And our shame is the interruption of something we're enjoying or we're really, you know, paying attention to. And this typically happens in our culture. At some point in childhood, this idea takes root unconsciously, internally, that I'm defective, helpless, and alone through a series of breaks in affinity with the people we're closest to, whether it's a caregiver, our parents, a school teacher, what have you. And we begin to have an internal life and the itness, that voice in our head turns on and it starts telling us, you're not enough. There's not enough. You're not going to get what you want. You're going to lose what you have. So now, because I'm a biological entity and I have to survive, my basically, for lack of a better term, my tube, my alimentary canal takes over and it tells me, for you to survive in this day and age, you've got to be someone and you've got to be special. And you've got to be extraordinary and you've got to accomplish and you've got to now I'm seeking material solutions for spiritual problems. And I've fomented a spiritual crisis. And I don't know that I don't know this. 
And I've started to drift from a natural way of being because I've reversed the direction of my thinking. And as we like to say, now I'm fucked with a side of fucked, re-fucked, par-fucked with a six-pack of fucked. And if you're out there listening, I'm pretty sure I have your attention now if this applies to you, to the other 70% that it doesn't, you know, forgive me. But there is a, a portion of your audience that I'm speaking to who experience tremendous neglect, abuse, and dysfunction in their family of origin. And pain is pain. Whatever you made up about what happened, the story you have about that is fomenting and provoking this drift in your life where you've lived X amount of years, you're so far into your career, and you've set your life up and organized your life in the way you have. And you have this story that there is no way to transform or transcend what I got going on. And I just got to ride this thing out until I either commit suicide or, you know, die a death of despair, but there, or or if something is going to, you know, fall out of the sky and hit me on the head and change the circumstances of my life. That's not how transformation happens, but that's where you find yourself because if you're tuning into James's show and, you know, and you've been listening to him, you're, you're picking up kernels of wisdom from the guests he's had on the show. And from James, I'm asserting, and you're trying to figure out, okay, at what point does the intervention happen in my life? Well, that intervention happens in your life today, if you're listening. And this is where you can really begin to take an honest, hard-hitting look into your life and to the dishonesty that is running your life. This is why you can't stop looking at porn and you can't stop compulsively masturbating. This is why you can't stop stealing. This is why you can't stop cheating on your spouse. This is why you can't stop rationalizing um, behaviors that go against your own moral values or your own internal philosophy um, because your brain has tricked you uh, and has told you a big lie that you still listen to. From this day forward, you don't have to live your life like that. From this moment forward, you don't have to live your life like that. And yes, it's going to be very, very difficult. Anybody that tells you that you can just read the law of attraction and sort your life out is, is lying to you and they're selling you a bill of goods, it is very, very difficult to change. And I will share this. Change is going to happen whether you do something or not. You have an opportunity today to impact that change and to reroute the course of your life and experience levels of satisfaction and fulfillment right now that you can only begin to imagine. I'm telling you this from having personally experienced this the last four and a half years have been difficult. I have had to face very, very painful truths about myself. And if you're listening to this podcast today, there's a very good chance that you're, what you're struggling with is your own narcissism. And you, part of you know that, parts of you know that. You don't want to give it that name. But narcissism is not what you think it is. But this is the cultural wound that we're suffering and struggling with here in the West. We just don't like to give it that name. Narcissism is the new N-word that we actually can say out loud and we should say out loud and we should begin to understand what that is and and how it's absolutely destroying our lives and our relationships. And that's why you see the higher levels of divorce and suicide in the first responder space because we don't have honest conversations about our dishonesty and our narcissism. Well, let's stay on narcissism for a second. We had a great conversation about this a little while ago. Um, there are so many different ways that we express our mental struggles, our internal struggles. It's funny. When you said stealing, 
immediately a flashback. I had this bizarre period when I was, Jesus, I don't know, like mid-teens all the way through to like early 20s where I remember being a kleptomaniac. And it was from my family specifically. It was from my dad um, and occasionally my mom, but many of my dad. And, and I remember not being able to stop. And I was a good, kind kid for the longest time and then had this run of, you know, constantly disappointing them. And, you know, there was an element where I think subconsciously there might have been blame for the breakup of their marriage and things that we discovered after. But beside the point, I'd never thought about that until just now that my thievery in that time of my life was yet another expression of, you know, of trauma that wasn't being addressed. When I look at a lot of the the, the cyberspace now, it was interesting. I, I think we, I told you this. Ed Sheeran, the the singer, did a little, you know, interview. Not little, but he did an interview, and someone used a, a a portion of it on a social media video, and I I shared it, and it was about narcissism, and it was saying, you know, when I see a lot of these these posts that are very narcissistic, I'm not looking down on them. I almost want to reach out and give them a hug because I know they're hurting. And I thought that was a beautiful point because I see the same thing. A lot of my friends, when I know they're going through something, all of a sudden they're they're filming themselves and you know with quotes underneath on their posts and that's when i know they're in a bad place not a good place so i see that element of narcissism it's funny that the the naysayers on that post that i shared when i went to their accounts there was just nothing but selfies i'm like okay mic drop right there but i see that is absolutely a reflection of one of the reflections of the mental health crisis that we have is like you said there's this conscious or subconscious desire to be loved through likes and shares and you know tweets that is another just glaring red flag epidemic and another you know telltale sign that that so many people are hurting because you know a, a healthy mind may use social media as a tool but they're sure as hell not going to make the the nucleus of their whole social media account themselves you know James, when we have it, or when it has us, that we are defective, helpless, and alone, our default setting is one to lie, cheat, and steal. When I was a kid from 13 to 17, I worked in a pizza shop. I made about 35 bucks a weekend because I wanted to look good, and I'll get into looking good and dominating as, as artifacts, as extensions, and second-order effects of all of this. I wanted to look good. I wanted, Nikes had just hit the market. Um, um, designer jeans, you know, pop collared polo shirts. So I earned about $35 cash a weekend, but I stole at least $500 over the course of those four years, probably more. And as part of my recovery, many, many years later, I had to go back to the owner of that pizza shop and make an amends. And it was the scariest thing and one of the most incredible experiences of my life to go back and humble myself for this man who I avoided this amends um, and I knew it was it was just killing me inside because I wanted to look good and I wanted to feel fit in. But underneath that, these feelings of being defective, helpless and alone from these breaks in affinity at a very early part of my life, because, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in an orphanage for the first few years of my life. Um, my family came back and got me, you know, and so much is going on in that brain those first 48 months. But when we get to narcissism, I want people to hear this narcissism is a complex post-traumatic protective stress response. If you have childhood trauma 
and moral injury from the job, those two things are going to collapse. Gravity is on. That is complex post-traumatic stress. Your default setting in life is going to be addiction, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, sugar on the exogenous side um, from the outside in. If you're someone who's prone to drama like yours truly, you're going to go more toward the process addictions, sex, gambling, food, drama. You're going to be moody. People are telling you you're moody. And that is the way that you show up in the world as a post-traumatic protective stress response from your complex PTS. And if the back of my hand, we, you know, we live in a dualistic um, uh, universal experience. You can't have up without down, in without out, light without dark. If the back of my hand is complex PTS, then the front of my hand is narcissism. Or I'm going to have very pronounced narcissistic traits. And I'm going to be in relationships with others where I have either objectified them or I am their subject. So my relationships are going to be enmeshed, entangled, codependent. And, and I'm going to keep repeating these themes and dramatizations throughout my lifetime. I'm going to blame others because it's very, very hard for people with narcissistic traits to take responsibility. It's very difficult for us to learn from our mistakes and to change our behavior. Well, beginning today, we're going to get underneath that and we're going to give you ways of being. There's no tools. People talk about, I'm going to get all these tools when I go to save a warrior. I go, look, the only tool at save a warrior is the metaphorical crowbar we use to unspike your foot from that vicious circle that you're living in and that limited life. And again, if you're struggling with these things, they're not inherently bad or wrong. They're just very, very limited. And if you're listening, I don't want you to live a limited life. I want you to live an unlimited life as a spirit states person who has experienced in profound levels of satisfaction and fulfillment. Why? Because I, my heroes in this culture have always been folks that answer the 911 call. Why? Because when I was a kid and they showed up at my house, um, my dad's behavior radically shifted um, and he would stop physically abusing my mother. And I just thought that people who wore those uniforms were gods. And in our culture, you, you have replaced the mythological God for younger people. They look up the firefighters. We, they look up the police officers. It isn't until they get into their teens and, you know, have their own opinion about what the culture is saying uh, with respect to police officers. But, but to children, you are the mythological God in the Western culture, in the American culture. And I wanted to be that in spite of what was going on for me internally. So yeah, this is what's happening for us, to us, as a post-traumatic protective stress response from your complex PTSD. It's gonna show up as narcissism. And you are either first identified or you're what's known as the echo supply. So when people you hear them on social media all the time. He was a narcissist. She was a narcissist. Well, guess what? So were you. So are you. Because narcissism, narcissists can only attract other narcissists. And it, you're either the subject or the object. And why do you do that? Because you have unintegrated survival traits that are no longer serving you. And you're stuck in a vicious circle until you're able to stop. And how do you stop? simple, not easy. You got to be done suffering.
And maybe today is the day where you decide I'm done suffering. And from this moment forward, I'm going to learn to tell a different story about what happened. Well, let's get to that story then. The the facts, the, the statistics that you told me before, 100% of women sexually abused and 85% of men after we had our conversation. Well, well let, let's contextualize that. And you're talking across a population of 1,860 participants. So we're not talking about, you know, hey, I ran this study, you know, a semester at school. I, I shared with you that I'm a doctoral candidate at USC in their school of social work. And, you know, I was able to finish my MBA with an emphasis, you know, on design thinking and disruptive innovation technology, the, 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 the business model, the metaphysical models that Save Warriors platformed on. We're talking about 1,860 participants, and this is 15 years after being in 12-step communities. So we're talking about exposure to thousands of people in recovery and integrative programs. So hear this the right way if you're listening. Parts of me actually know what the fuck I'm talking about. Not from a clinical perspective, but from a down on the court where the rubber meets the road, direct experience of talking to people like you, the listener, every day for the last 10 years. Well, I think it's an, a really important point for everyone to understand. And just for me as an observer, so f moving forward from that conversation, I spend a little bit more time, I'm a little bit more courageous and, and hopefully ask questions in a way that open the door for people to be more vulnerable. And all of a sudden, you know, person after person after person, I just pointed out the other day, um, I had a, a gentleman who's, who's going to talk about mold. There's a powerful, powerful, you know, mental health story. And we talked about his early life. Um, Dan John, strength and conditioning guru, same thing. We're going to talk weightlifting. We ended up talking mental health. And so then you focus specifically on the, the military and the police and fire and, and the associated professions. So many, so, so many have, you know, what we call, you know, significant trauma, not comparing trauma, but were sexually abused, physically abused, you know, grew up around addiction, um, you know, were fostered, were adopted. Um, and then you have others where who wasn't actually in the, in the first responder profession, but one of my friends who's actually in Ohio was a middle child. But the way he was treated, the way he wasn't the, the child that his parents had expected, it was equally as traumatic to him. So as I'm moving forward post our conversation, I'm starting to realize, my God, you know, the foundation of so many of these people that struggle later in life is this element of childhood trauma. And I've heard you talking about you know, the high ACEs score that so many of us have as well. So I know we touched on it, you know, four years ago, but if we could start there again, explain to me, you know, your kind of aha moment when it came to understanding childhood trauma and now here we are four more years later what you're witnessing as far as that element in so many of the men and women in uniform that are struggling today yes thank you so about four and a half years ago i i discovered the so what of adverse childhood experience survey scores aces measures neglect abuse and trauma uh, forgive me, neglect, abuse, and dysfunction in the first 18 years of a person's life. And you can score from a zero to a 10. The average ACEs score of a Sable Warrior participant over the last 10 years in, in rearward extrapolation is a seven. And what's the so what of a seven? First of all, you're 50 times, 50 to 100 times more likely to attempt suicide with an ACEs score. Once you get to a six, you're 50 times more likely. And 
when you get up into a seven, the numbers, it starts to double from there to 10. But the so what of a seven is it is the same ACEs score of a convicted felon in the United States penitentiary system. So the institutionalized thinking is the same. We think the same way on average in this community of practice as a convicted felon. Now, that is horrifying. So when people tell you there's no biomarker for PTS and they call it PTSD, I was on a panel recently, I observed a panel, I should say, that the Disabled American Veterans put on in Cincinnati with a very um, celebrated clinician who effectively invented cognitive processing therapy, which is an aspect of the work that we do. The, the, the clinician said there's no biomarker for PTS. Yes, there is. The biomarker is your ACEs score. And I will tell you, we give that survey twice during the Save a Warrior experience. 30 to 40% of the scores go up. The same 10 questions that are asked 72 hours later, 30 to 40% of the questions the uh, of the scores go up. Why? Because the veil of denial is lifted in the game and there is a, a willingness to be, let's say, less less dishonest in one's responses to those 10 questions. It takes a minute to take the adverse childhood experiences survey score. If you're a four or above, you're going to have problems in life. You probably already have problems in life. Once you start to get above a six, you're going to have significant trouble in life in your important relationships. And you need to do something about that. On average, we see a seven. That is catastrophic with respect to what's going on for that person internally. One of the acronyms we use here, and I'm probably going to get some of this wrong because I'm a little punchy today, is PAVA. Poverty, addiction, violence, and abuse is endemic in the first responder space. Why? Because a sizable number of us grew up with abuse, neglect, and dysfunction, a high degree of addiction among our caretakers, sometimes profound mental illness, sometimes profound sexual abuse that was persistent. So we have it that we have, we, 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 the story we tell ostensibly is that we want to serve. We put our right hand up, take the oath of office because we want to serve. Stop telling yourself that lie. You chose that job for security because you didn't feel the world was safe. You have unintegrated survival traits and you believe that if I do this, I'm going to look good. I'm going to avoid looking bad. I'm going to dominate life to avoid being dominated by life, not getting that in my avoidance of domination, I'm being dominated by that avoidance. Huh? You heard me. And you live in this vicious circle. Now, this is for 30% to 50% of the people out there listening. If you're listening to this show, there's part of you that has a story that I'm fucked up and I don't know what to do. So if you listen and pay attention as the show goes on, as you listen to James' podcast today, I'm going to give you some practical, hard-hitting, breaking open ways for you to transform the quality of your life from this day forward. Now, if you don't take these suggestions, then you're saying, you know what, fuck that guy. He's only been doing this for 25 years. He's not asking me for anything. He's not trying to sell me a t-shirt. He's not trying to get me to buy something. I'm not trying to get you to sign up for a course. I'm trying to get you to I'm trying to put you in a position to not have to transact for your mental wellness 
and your spiritual journey through life. You should not, if you're transacting to get better internally, you're being ripped off. You should not have to pay for commonsensical, well-grounded wisdom that is already always inside of you. I'm here to help you uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking you from having access to these internal adaptive mechanisms that came with you because whatever designed you to be here did not send you here with batteries not included. Batteries were included. We've just got to put you in a position to access your own internal adaptive mechanisms and live the life that you were designed to live, which is one of happiness, vitality, love, and self-expression. When we don't live like that, when it's all about looking good and dominating, when we're living in the payoffs of what we call those rackets from our fixed ways of being and our persistent complaints, it's why you feel like you're dying inside slowly every day because you're, you're thinking, you're, 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 you're thinking in a backwards way is the best way I can describe it. And, and there's an, you have the symbols of love, of, of happiness in your life. You have the symbols of love. You have the symbols of vitality. You may have the symbols of self-expression, but you don't have the real thing. If you did, why are you listening to this podcast? Think about that. If, if, you, if those things were present for you as a presence, why are you going to spend the next couple hours listening to this show? So I'm speaking to you from a place of reality about modernity with the idea of possibility leading to integrity so that we can support you in living your life in the natural flow of direction that you ride the train in the direction that it's going. And listen, I don't know what James is going to do with this podcast. He may flush this thing. This may not be episode 63. I think we're at a different place four and a half years ago. He might be like, Jesus Christ, this guy's getting burst transmissions from a satellite and, and has aluminum foil over his windows. I'm going to have to flush this whole episode. But from, from this moment forward, I'm only going to shoot you straight about what I've seen happen for the nearly 2,000 people who have come through our program in the last 10 years at no cost. It has been brutally difficult for them, but it has also revolutionized, transformed, and liberated them. Um, and, and out of those 1,860 people who are decidedly suicidal, we've lost seven to suicide. Well, first the end. I was going to say, <laughs> firstly, there's the going to be no flushing. I haven't flushed one yet, even though, for example, one ended up, it turns out, not telling me the entire truth in the interview. I left that there too. But I mean, this is certainly, you know, going to be of incredible value. So, no, this is going to be a second and, you know, an amazing episode of, of your your knowledge and wisdom. Um, so, with you talking about that as a precursor, then let's get to it. So, let's start unwrapping the, I mean, you said it wasn't tools, but, but these philosophies, these, these, uh, journeys that people can start taking to, you know, get to the root of what they're struggling with and grow from it. Oh, wonderful. You know, first things being first, as a human being, the way your life is put together and the way you're organized, you cannot have an experience as an experience. We cannot have an experience as an experience. We make up a story about whatever happens to us in life. Something happens and I make up a story. What I don't know as a human being is the, this thrownness to be, again, we talk funny, is that I will collapse that story on top of what happened. And I will very quickly find myself in a vicious circle, perseverating on thoughts 
about the stories I make up about what happened. You can't stop doing that just like I would challenge the listener now. If you think you can do that, turn that voice off in your head right now. Go ahead, I'll wait. You can't. This is why having access to your own internal adaptive mechanisms can cause you throughout your day to interrupt that thing that's spinning in your mind and and displace your excuse that, well, I can't meditate because I can't stop these thoughts that are racing. Those aren't your thoughts that are racing. That's it. That's the itness of your life going to work on you. And that's been talking to you since you were about four years old. That is not normal. Now, just because it's not normal doesn't mean you're crazy. What you're having is a human experience. You're living, you're, you're, you're a spiritual being having a human experience and you're fixated on people, places, and things. This is why a good meditative practice that involves a metacognitive component to it is so vital for you or any other human being. And listen, hear this the right way. I'm a guy that worked for the Secret Service, the LAPD, and the FBI. Our trauma isn't special. It's just life on life's terms. And it's not personal. But you're not, you're, you're, you're not special because you suffer. And relative in the scale, we live in a time in history where our suffering is profoundly mitigated by all of the technological comforts we enjoy. I'm not in Ukraine right now in some basement hoping the Russians don't bomb me to death before dinner time. And I've lived in Serbia. I was, you know, part of the fallout of Kosovo. I served with the Ukrainian military. It's devastating. I, I'm in a 350-acre retreat estate right now coming to you from the countryside in Hillsboro. I couldn't have more comfort and convenience in my life. But see, that voice in my head, it didn't get that memo. So it's just churning and churning and churning, and it's bringing up the past, and it's throwing that into my future. We call it future fucking, and I'm throwing my, fu- my past into the future, and I'm living into a future given from my past. If I don't interrupt that, that's going to start to affect other parts of my body that begin with my mouth and end with my anus. That's why so many cops and firefighters die of organ disease because your alimentary canal is just squeezing to process chemicals through your body in an effort to numb what's going on for you internally. And, you know, you can't take a solid shit. You can't digest a meal because you're just so spun up by this itness in your mind telling you that you're not enough. There's not enough. You're not going to get what you want. You're going to lose what you have because you have non-shareable problems that we talked about because you have a story that you're defective, helpless and alone. People are going to find out what you've got going on. They're going to see your Google search history. You're going to get caught by her or him, or they're going to find out you've got a second set of books going in your life because when it thinks you and you have the thoughts that it thinks, the default setting is to lie, cheat, and steal. And again, if you're the other 60, 70% of the audience out there, you might be thinking, you know what? Fuck this guy. You know, change the channel. I can't help you. But if you're done suffering and you're really struggling and you're tuning into James's show because you're beginning to have ideations of, of taking yourself out of this game called life, you, then you really need to screw in and listen because you're the person that's going to be hitting that submit button to come to save a warrior at some point. And we're going to help you sort yourself out. So I'm only on this show today. Um, look, I've transcended a lot of this. I know what to do on a daily basis to not suck start a pistol and blow my brains out that I thought about for a long time, you may not be there yet. And you may have kids. So if you're listening, I'm working for your kids right now, because I believe 
from the service you render to keep me safe and to keep my house from burning down and to keep me from having everything I own looted and stolen. I have a spiritual duty to come back for you and put you in a position to help you save your life. Because if you kill yourself, because the only thing that matters to your children is that they love you. But that's it. That's the only thing that matters to a child is that they love their parents. Everything else is everything else. I have a spiritual duty to your children to share with you that which was so freely given to me over the last 50 years of my life. Because I've been going to mental institutions since I was six years old. Open-air mentally ill people are, are my kind of people. It's people who are pretending they're not pretending that they're not okay that terrify me. So that being said, we've got to get down to maybe just maybe who you are is not what's going on for you internally. You are not your mental state. You are not your emotional state. You are not your bodily state. You are not your thoughts, including memories. You are not your representations. You are not the stories you make up about what happened. Rather, you don't know that you don't know that. And that is running your life if you're that 30 to 40% of James's audience that's struggling. You're either completely consumed with his Aussie accent, just like I am, or you're here because you're trying to piece together some bit of mental wellness to get you through life because it's just not working for you anymore. You're not promoted enough. You don't have enough in your 401k. She's not working out. He's not working out. Just all the satisfaction and fulfillment in your life is gone. It still looks good and you're still able to dominate, but you can't sleep. You can't get up. And you can't find any joy, happiness, love, vitality, or self-expression. That's because of the thoughts that are thinking you, and you have no effective way to interrupt those thoughts. If you have a peer support specialist you can talk to, you can't tell them about what you've got going on because you don't know who they're going to tell. So you have non terrible problems that come from feeling defective, helpless, and alone. And you're in this vicious circle that is leaving your life in a very, very limited state. But what you cannot, what you cannot impact by ignoring it is this thing called drift that is driving you to this place of suicide. That's the business I'm in, is to talk straight to you about what's going on for you internally. So yeah, I don't know where that leaves us, James, but I just, you know, you asked me the time, I'll tell you how to build a watch. <laughs> I think you said that last time as well. <laughs> um, so, yes. Yeah, so you're, you're dealing with your own narcissism. And let's get past that word. It's just a fancy term for complex post-traumatic stress. You have developmental trauma and you have moral injury. Moral injury is something happened that shouldn't have happened. Something didn't happen that should have happened. And they happened in two different brains. The developmental trauma is when the first 85% of your brain was forming in the first four years post-gestation. The moral injury occurs anytime thereafter in the neocortex, the, the new brain. And until you can turn on that anterior cingulate that mediates between those two parts of your brain, you're going to keep having these perseverating thoughts. And this is why a solid meditation technique is key to turn off and reverse and to begin to reverse that thinking that is leading you towards some very unhealthy thoughts precipitating or presaging some really unhealthy behaviors. You probably worry about your drinking. Maybe you smoke too much weed. You look at too much porn. You eat too much of the wrong kinds of food. 
and you're saying the wrong kinds of things to yourself and others. So as you said, and we'll get into this in more depth, you know, hit and submit and save a warrior application is, is, you know, key for a lot of people, especially, you know, if they feel like they're getting towards a more desperate end of the, the scale, what are some of the things, I mean, you mentioned meditation, so let's just expand on what that looks like, but what are some other things as well? The people listening now, the moment they get to their station, their home, their, you know, whatever it is that their destination is, that they can start doing today. Well, they could go to the Facebook page for Save a Warrior. There's 156 recorded versions of warrior meditation there. It is a patented technique. And um, if you go there, listen to Adam Carr, who, who is one of our master integrators. He's a, we call him the Green Beret with an MBA. He, he will walk you through that meditation technique that takes about 20 minutes. There's three phases. There's the nullification phase. There's the, the breath awareness phase. There's the metacognitive phase. And it is designed to begin to rewire your brain. It comes out of a book called How God Changes Your Brain. It should be called How Meditation Changes Your Brain by these two neuroscientists out of University of Pennsylvania predicated upon really good science. If you're a flat earther or an anti-vaxxer, stop listening to me. I can't help you and you're not done suffering. But if, you're, if you believe the earth is round, and if you believe in science, because science is meant to be believed, not interpreted, and not reworked, um, then, then we can be of support to you. So warrior meditation is a great practice to put into your life twice a day that involves those three phases. And Adam walks you through in a very nice way. And if you are not tired of hearing my voice, go to Evening 33 at our Facebook page. And I'll take you through a metacognitive aspect of that that'll blow your mind. And the good news is these are uploaded. They're free. You can access them anytime. You know, there's, there's some debate out there about mindfulness-based stress reduction as a cognitive processing, you know, therapeutic adjunct. Um, I like our technique. We start off with transcendental meditation. But I like the three components because it works all three areas, it works the areas of your brain that need to be worked to get you out of that fight, flight, fawn, freeze, protective response into this place where you can start to tap into your own eternal wisdom. Your body, this, this experience of Save a Warrior is meant to blow the mind. Why? Because your mind's fucking you over. You, you, you want to be outside of your mind. Like literally if somebody says to you, you are outside of your mind, just tell them thank you because they just complimented you. The mind is where you're trapped. There's body, mind, and spirit. But where we really lack a efficacy in our life is the ability to blow our own mind and to get into the possibility of life is philosophical assessment versus one of psychological assessment. 95% of people who struggle, it's not a biological component, but we have to go in through the body. Why? Because the body keeps the score. All of your trauma is in the blood, the tissues, the nerves, and the bones. And I'm just giving a, a plug for Bessel van der Kolk's book um, where he synthesizes all of this data and talks to you about something like the meditation technique that I described that can make a profound difference in your life. What's going to help you? Find somebody else to do it with and hold one another accountable. You need three things to change your life. Number one, you got to be vulnerable. You got to be open to the pot. I got to be open to the possibility that I don't know everything that I need to know to change what's going on for me internally. Number two, I need to be accountable. I need to be checking in with a partner to let them know that who I am I'm being who I say I am. And, and thirdly, 
I've got to be coachable. I got to be willing to dump out my glass and let something new come in. So we have a little jingle at Salt. Got to have the VAC, lest I be a DMC. And the DMC is a drifty, moody cunt. Forgive the French. James will edit that out. So I can either be vulnerable, accountable, and coachable, or I can be drifty and moody, and I'll leave the C word out this time. You can figure out what I mean by that, because that's why you're having problems in your relationships, because people are telling you you're miserable, you're moody, you're angry all the time, or you're numb. That's because you're living outside of, you're living inside of that old brain of yours that is telling you, I'm not safe. It's not safe. No one's safe. The world is unsafe. And it's attack, 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 lest I be attacked. Either this applies to you or you're just passing the trip. Either way, good to know stuff. And you can always refer somebody back to this conversation because if you're a police or firefighter, a police officer or firefighter listening to this EMS, a dispatcher, what have you, the, the, the worst thing is when you go to work and you find out somebody killed themselves because you know it didn't have to happen. And you live in this illusion that this person, because they work in a protective, you know, um, context of life where they, where they earn their living, that you have given them, you've already issued them, um, this, you have this idea of them that they shouldn't do that, that their life shouldn't be organized around that. So you can share with them, Hey, you know, James did this amazing interview and they went back and forth and talked about these practical things that you can do to transform your way of being just by doing nothing. See, that's what's interesting about meditation. You don't have to do anything. It's, 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 it's paradoxical in the sense of don't just do something, sit there. Yeah, but I, I can't turn the thoughts off. I don't care. Can you tap your fingers? Can you breathe in and breathe out using a mantra? Can you sit? For the last six minutes and 40 seconds and notice thoughts, feelings, sensations, and phenomenon and watch them ebb and flow, then you can use word meditation. Now, now your excuses are gone. Now it's whether or not you want to heal. But if that's the case, you have to be done suffering. So there's one way. There's a powerful way to transform the quality of your life every day, 20 minutes a day. We recommend you do it twice a day. Well, I think one thing that resonates with me as well, and someone said this, I forget who it was, I wish I could credit them, and it's not a you know a unique saying, but I think it's so pertinent, is choose your heart. And they were talking, I think, originally with, with obesity. And it's like, yeah, you know, working out is hard, getting up and going for a run or whatever. There's an element of stress involved with that, and it's you stress, you know, it's it's something that's gonna strengthen the body. But being morbidly obese is hard. Like the shame of not being able to fit in a plane seat, you know, not being able to climb stairs. I mean, all these these areas, the physical exertion that it takes to carry an extra hundred pounds around with you twenty four seven, is incredibly hard. And I had a very low point. Um, I think it was November. I went home back to Europe to see my family, and there was just a whole bunch of compounding factors. Um, I'm even forgetting what they were now, but of course, preloading a whole bunch of episodes. So I did a whole load of interviews back to back to back. Um, there was an element of uh, sleep deprivation. I'm trying to remember what the cause was now, but there was just, you know, multiple factors. When I got to Europe, add in now, you know, jet lag and all these other things, I was just as deep a depression as I've probably ever been, including during my divorce. Um, and, 
it was the first time that I felt my skin crawling as people talk about, like I was, you know, underwater the whole time. And so the first thing that I set myself to do was meditation every single day and a yoga practice. And neither of these were that long. I think each was about 10 or 15 minutes. So combined, it was, you know, 30 minutes on, on the balcony of my mum's house where we were staying. And it was incredible to see slowly it start working. But those first few days were fucking awful. Sitting there was, was horrendous. But so was the other 23 and a half hours. So as you said, you know, sitting still and, you know, can you tap your fingers and can you breathe? I understand those first few days and how hard meditation can be. But once you submit and you understand it's okay that those thoughts are running around, you know, you're not trying to make them disappear like a, you know, magician with a rabbit. You're just trying to acknowledge them and then they'll start kind of, you know, slowly dissipating. And the one observation I had after all this and I came home and then abstained from alcohol for, you know, quite a while as well, which is another layer was you hear, I think it was in Wayne Dyer, who we both adore talking about, you know, you, you have 10,000 thoughts a day, but it's only a thousand, uh, sorry, a hundred thoughts that you have over and over and over again. And each thought to me in my mind was like a ping pong ball in one of those bingo machines. And what meditation did over those next few weeks was it like it turned the fan off that bingo machine. The thoughts are still there. I still have to pay my bills. I still have to take care of my son, you know, all these responsibilities, but they're not bouncing around over and over and over again. But it was hard initiating that practice and it wasn't overnight. It wasn't a McDonald's drive-through experience, but it paid off to the point where that effort at the beginning created so much um, healing in the other 23 hours of my day. <clears throat> Beautiful. Wonderful. You know, when I first learned to meditate, someone said, look, you got to dip that white cloth into the blue indigo ink first thing in the morning. And as you have these, I'm told it's 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day. I was listening to uh, Joe Dispenza recently. That what happens over the course of the day is that life bleaches that dipped cloth back to near bone white and in the latter part of the day you dip it again to get through the latter part of your day to begin to reverse this thinking that is that is killing us um um with that also you know i've started rowing about six or seven weeks ago to get back into my body i stopped working out for a long time and and i'm like you know i would walk and i'd try to watch what i eat i eat one meal a day within a one hour window been doing that for the last 10 months. That was difficult at first. But yeah, it's getting through the see, we're going back to where we began. See, this is a restoration, a restoring, a restoring the domains of showing up in life. There's only three ways you can know something as an experience, as a story, and as nothing, as a possibility. And when you live in a vicious circle, what you have lost, what we have lost the capacity is to create that distinction between the experience and or the thought and the story we make up about it. Meditating with a metacognitive technique beyond knowing, using the tapping, uh, an analog form of EMDR, getting into the breath awareness, the mindfulness piece where, you know, in on, uh, out on va, Adam explains more of that at the Sable Warrior Facebook page, gets us back in the body and begins to slow things down because look, we're stuck in this meat sack, man. And until it's over, this, this is it. This is, this is the, this is all we are 
is a sensory being moving through time and space with those things I talked about, that interiority. And, and the name of this game is disappearing what's going on for me internally by completing the past and getting complete with the source of my relationships. And maybe we'll have some time to get into that. But if you're out there struggling, here's another thing too. Here's a newsflash. You're incomplete with your mother and your father. You've either got resentments against them or drama with them. And they are, they're the source of your relationships. All you have to do is lay down on your back before you go to bed tonight, get flat, take your left hand, stick it about a couple of inches above your left eye, take your right hand, stick it about a couple of inches above your right eye. That's where you met mom and dad. They were your gods. They were the ones that magically put stuff into your tube that you pooped out the other end and your brain attached your survival to the presence of their sound, the sight of them, the smell of them, because as a little baby, you couldn't see them. You couldn't see them the way you see them now. And you were oriented in time and space with these people above you who would magically put things into your alimentary canal and your little brain made meaning that your absolute survival depended on your connection to these people. What didn't happen when you were 12 or 13 years old is the village elder didn't come in and snatch you out of the hut and take you out on a vision quest for about four or five days and initiate you into adult philosophy. So you remain stuck. We remain stuck as a culture in the manifestation of self as psychological assessment. That is why your life doesn't, why your life lacks workability. Your relationships work lackability because you have never gotten complete so I've moved on from distinction, having an event as an event and a story as a story to this place of completion until we are complete with the source of our relationships, namely our mother and father, whoever those two figures are in our life, you will never have a healthy relationship with another human being. You will either be there to get something or you're the one in their life that they're getting things from. You're either getting supply from people or they're getting supply for you. It goes back to that narcissism. There isn't a condition that's more easily, readily definable. Is the narcissist getting supply or not? Is the person who's getting supply from you getting supply or not? Why is this happening? Because you're not complete with the source of your relationships and the meaning you've given them. Well, how do I get complete easily while you're listening right now? All you have to do internally is say, mom, dad, will you forgive me for making you wrong? for being human. Now I just threw your stress through the roof. You don't know what they did to me, what they said to me, what they didn't do for me, what they didn't say to me. It doesn't matter. Healing in this art form is always paradoxical. If you're a very smart person, okay, you managed to get the job that you wanted to get. You've had to go through unbelievable training, continuing training. You may have, um, a secondary level of education. You have a master's degree. You may have postgraduate work under your belt. You, you've read how many white papers and how many studies and all the books and all the movies and all the popular culture you've consumed because you've got this big brain that can process all of that. Well, let me shove this in that big brain of yours. Until you get complete with the source of your relationships, you have no shot at happiness, joy, vitality, or self-expression. You are addicted to the payoffs of being right, valid, justified, looking good, dominating, and winning. And it's costing you your aliveness. I didn't make up the rules. I didn't make up gravity. 
and it's always on. This is a gravitational law as an analog because of how you have them in your life. You have them as gods, whether you believe it, whether you know it, or whether you don't. It is endemic in this society. And if all you ever do is forgive yourself for what you had to do to survive, including the resentments and drama you have with mom and dad, this goes back to your moodiness. And only you know whether or not you're moody. See, I thought I was moody because my dad was moody and it just ran in the family. No, we're moody because that is the steady state of the narcissism that is pervading the suicidal ideation and the suicides. Again, it is a complex post-traumatic protective stress response. So now I'm getting complete with my mom and dad. How do I do that? I don't, it, it's optimal to do it in person, but if I just say to myself, to my higher power, your God, what have you, please forgive me for having made them wrong for being human. You disappear the incompletion. The key is not to pick it back up. Now that is difficult. It's difficult not to make the people wrong. So how do I have mom and dad? What's a better way to have them? What's a, what's a preferred way to have them? Have them as the agents of your existence. They're the tubes through which you came into your current manifestation as a human being. When you can have mom and dad as the agents of your existence and a higher power is your higher power and have that conscious contact through your prayer, through your affirmation, through your meditative techniques, now you're onto something. Otherwise, you're a God. You're a God of your own understanding. Here's the rhetorical question of the day, listener. How's that working out for you? Exactly. So if it's not working out for you, then maybe you need a bigger God or you need another higher power. And if you're out there listening, you can borrow mine. What's my higher power? The present moment, a word called quality, but something that presences you so that you're not stuck in the past, throwing your past into your future, living into a future given from your past. We must, <laughs> if we are to heal, seek spiritual solutions for spiritual problems. You cannot solve the problem. We cannot use the same thinking that got us into this problem. So your thinking brought you to this podcast today. The thinking that brought you into this space with James and I, that thinking will not move you past this space into this place of philosophical assessment because of that vicious circle that I talked about, about that collapse. So if I'm here, I've got to be willing to burn those boats, burn those maps, because in the minds of men and women, the maps are the last things to go. They are our unintegrated survival traits of people-pleasing, approval-seeking, getting guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves, being in codependent relationships, being addicted to alcohol, to booze, the um, same thing, porn, weed, prescription medication, food, gambling, on and on and on. So this is the day. This is the day. This is the line in the sand where I'm open to the possibility of possibility that the thinking that got me here, you're in an escape room. I've got to reverse my thinking. And it's always going to be novel and paradoxical. We're going back 5,000 plus years now to the wisdom of the ages for people that laid the foundation for the for the philosophy that we can now leverage to live the life we were always meant to live. So you mentioned about a hundred years ago, you know, there being a shift. It's interesting when I 
start kind of unwrapping and pulling the onion skin back, layers of the onion, um, you know, you, you see the, the current responder, for example, usually there's element of trauma from their parents. And then if I'm fortunate enough to be able to kind of learn more about their parents, now we're going back to like the World War II era. And now, you know, we look at that, for example, I myself am guilty of thinking that there were ticker tape parades and everyone came back, you know, to open arms. But then as you start hearing about the real real men and women, of course, that happened in Manhattan, some of these, you know, large um, urban cities. But a lot of times these men and women just came back the same way as our men and women have come back today. When you look back at that 100-year mark, what... It, what are the causes generationally that got us to this point and or what was taken away as you mentioned you know a rite of passage um you know vision quest what was taken away from western culture that maybe we could process it 100 years ago and now in 2022 so many people are struggling one person it's never the masses that change history james it's always one person sigmund freud knew knew about the pervasive nature of the sexualization of children in Europe. And his contemporaries said, <clears throat> you write about that, we'll destroy you. So he said, okay, it's about drive theory. It's, it's the, the, the contemporary problems that people were facing. Um, he got that down to a few things. You know, he, he brought forward this idea of ego, super ego and it, and we should, I hope we can touch on that too. But it wasn't until Alice Miller started writing in the late 70s, early 80s, and Young knew about it too. But it's interesting because Young was one of the early architects of Alcoholics Anonymous with Bill Wilson. Young also knew about this pervasiveness that children were seen as sex objects and the, and the prevailing belief in the field of psychology and psychiatry was, well, kids outgrow that. And I heard, I heard a prominent psychologist say today that neglect is not a form of trauma. And I would revisit the study where... They were not picking up infants to see what that would do to them physiologically and, and psychologically. And they had to stop the study because the infants were not, they would die from not being held and not being comforted and soothed and what have you. So you have this stain in not contemporary culture, but in, in some form of antiquity. It's, it's in modernity. I would say it's in the modern era where the collapse occurred, where we're going to not address the 800-pound elephant in the room. We're not going to talk about that as we evolve as a society that it's okay not to sexualize children because it, it, it persists today, okay? The, the, the numbers are the numbers that I tell you about. And what happens for a lot of people when they start to peel these layers back, as you say, is memories come back. But memories are always threatening to break through into your consciousness. But because we live in this culture in a reverse way of thinking, as the memory is threatening to break through, we are moving past our denial to a place of numbing it. So we numb this memory and we give ourselves another shot of shame. And I've got to cover that up with denial. And then again, the memory is threatening to break through whatever is working on our behalf, whether you call it God, spirit, he, she, it, mother earth, all that is, it is always conspiring on your behalf for you to be whole and complete because you came with batteries included. You have these internal adaptive mechanisms. And one of them is mourning and grieving. And I tell folks that come to Save a Warrior, you're using the wrong end of the tube to express yourself. We're talking about people who compulsively masturbate, 
we have people in our community that absolutely overeat and they're not using these tubes on either side of their eyes to mourn and grieve what happened as a the body's capacity to self-soothe. That's what grieving is about. And because of the cultural lies that Freud and Jung perpetuated, Alice Miller came along and wrote a handful of books about childhood sexual abuse, the drama, the gifted child, thou shalt not be aware, banished knowledge. We now know, we now know the so what of how that impacts us. You just look at the relationships that people get in that were, you hear this the right way. There's three C's of shame, contempt, and everybody knows the look from mom and dad, confusion. If you were sexualized as a child, you're confused. And then condemnation. Those are the three C's of shame. Contempt, confusion, and condemnation. Clinically, what sexual abuse does to a child is it confuses the child because the people that they look to as their gods, remember where I met mom and dad flat on my back, and they were tied to my survival. How could they do this to me because of the way I had them? Well, it's transgenerational trauma. Hurt people hurt people. And this superstitious belief this mix of sane and insane behaviors gets passed on to us. We take it out of love because all we are is love. We don't know any better. But very quickly, we realize I've got to cover this up because my, if I'm seen as defective, helpless, and alone, I'm not going to survive. My needs are not going to get met, and I'm going to be disconnected. And the cycle continues, and the insanity, the beat goes on with one generation pounding its insanity into the next. That's where we are. And that's why people are suffering in tremendous numbers in the West, because we're dishonest about our dishonesty. We lie about what happened and run cover because we're ashamed and we think it, nobody else has gone through this. Yeah. And the, excuse me, the child molestation, you know, topic, as you said, you know, you're getting up there and being asked by a respected company to not mention that. And I think that's the problem is to this day, it's an area that people don't want to discuss. And this is what's so beautiful about the podcast medium is all the filters are removed and all the everything you've said to today, including, you know, the quote unquote bad words I have no issue with because we use it, you know, frivolously in the UK anyway. Um you know, these I keep having it that you're Aussie. Forgive me. You're you're British. Yeah, no, it's all right. No worries. I, Thank you. Please forgive me. Please no, forgive no, me. No, let's, no. Let, let's let's pause on that for a second. Listen, I was introduced. It's like God. No, none of us knows God until someone introduces us. No one knows our sexuality until someone introduces us. And for me, it was the neighbor girl. And then it was my grandmother who had a very interesting way of bathing me. And then it was the sixth grade school teacher who would invite me over to his home to drink beer with him and get high while he was exposing himself to me um, surreptitiously to access his own internal drugstore. And then it was the 36-year-old woman behind the counter when I was 15 years old at the newspaper stand. Your, your, your listener out there, listen, I've done this long enough and listened to enough people's stories. Many of you have had these sexual encounters at a very critical time of your own development. And some of them are titillating and some of them are abusive. Some of them are confusing. They've impacted your sexuality and are showing up in your relationships. But when I, the way I got complete with my dad was six years after he died, I was taking somebody through a 12 step program and it dawned on me that voice in the head. It's not all bad. It said to me, you know, she molested him too. I had no idea. It never occurred to me. The reason why my father was so moody 
being the youngest of five, having lived a charmed life, it never dawned on me that my grandmother might have molested him too. That, that that somehow started with me when she was 66 years old. No, it doesn't go like that. So if you have that in your life as a history, it, it's confusing. I don't want to make it, I don't want to put it into a pejorative context because if, if I put it into a pejorative context, I've immediately put a story over it. I want to put it into reality as a what happened. What happened? I was touched. I was exposed to I was what have you, I was seduced. But what you don't understand most people is that what that does is it hits our internal drugstore of adrenaline, endorphins, melatonin, cortisol. We turn on the inside drugstore much sooner than our body is ready to process that and be with that and have rational thought about that as an experience over which I have some choice as to how that memory is going to be stored because I didn't have safe adults in my life to go to and say, hey, you know, the neighbor girl just spent the entire afternoon um, exposing herself to me because my father would have made up that that was my fault. The Catholic priest at my school would have told me that I was going to hell. The nuns would have said, oh, my God, you're a horrible child. At least that's how I had it back then. And most of the people, when I say most of the people, if you divide 185 by two, 92% of the people I see have childhood sexual trauma. And in life, they have a high degree of sexual trauma because we tend to repeat, the mind tends to repeat and look for the things that allow it to hit the inside drugstore. That is what happens that's why Alice Miller writes about the drama of the gifted child. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're anything like me, you don't like drama. You love drama. Now, there's a bitter pill to swallow. People who abuse drugs have a foundation in resentment, resentere to refeel. People who like porn, gambling, food, codependent relationships, you have endogenous addiction, meaning you're addicted to your own body's chemistry and you seek out these situations unconsciously so as to be able to self-soothe when the memories threaten to break through into consciousness. Why? Because you don't have a fucking spiritual guide in your life and you're out there doing it on your own and you're not going to get all of it from a podcast, but you will get it from a daily practice of good self-care. And it's probably in a room that ends in the word anonymous or derivative of that. But otherwise, you're just out there taking swings at 150 mile an hour fastballs that you can't get any wood on. So this is the day that you really want to take the cotton out of your ears, stick it in your mouth. And this is an amazing medium to do this across because no one is out there sticking their hand up going, yeah, but how about what if that's it doing its job on you? That's that itness again, that is fighting for survival and it uses your life for survival. These addictions are designed to kill us, and it doesn't matter why. It's too deep to get into, and it doesn't make a difference in the quality of your life. And you can ask, you know, what's the catch? Well, there's got to be a catch. Yeah, you're right. There is a catch. The catch is there's no catch. Now, wrap your mind around that, that there's no catch, that I'm not transacting with you, and the only thing I want for you is to have a rich, full life. Yeah, but there's got to be a catch. Okay, stay up till 4 a.m. trying to noodle that out. And then let James know what you come up with. There actually are people in this world who 
who are rooting for you, who are not punching holes in your boat, who are bailing buckets of water with you and rowing in the same direction. Why? Because it gives my life purpose. And a life filled with purpose displaces any idea of suicide. I cannot hold two thoughts in my mind at the same time. If my life is organized around being of maximum service to a higher power and the people closest to me, that's called purpose. One cannot be purposeful. One cannot live life on purpose and kill oneself. I would rather you live a purpose-driven life and stop looking for meaning with the meaninglessness because it doesn't mean anything that it doesn't mean anything. And if you make up, well, if it doesn't mean anything, then fuck it. I'll just kill myself. You just gave meaning to the meaninglessness. That's the trap. That's it using your life for survival. And when you begin to integrate these survival traits and you live in a place of declaration, if you live in a place of creativity and inventing, like like this conversation that James and I are having, it's coming from nothing. It's generated from nowhere in no time and it's no thing. But then it becomes everything, everywhere, every time all time. Now we're, now we're on to something. Now we have, now we're in a new domain. Now we're in a new frontier. Now we're somewhere else that we've never been before in the experience of our life. Now you got something. Now you're moving towards purpose and integrating in your grit, integrating these survival traits. And now you get to get your life. What's the, so what of that? You're going to have to give up a lot of these shitty relationships in your life. You're going to have to start disconnecting from certain people, places, and things in your life. You're going to have to begin this idea. If you're thinking about killing yourself or hurting yourself, changing everything in your life. Here's the really good news. It's possible. I've seen it happen again and again and again for people who understand that the cure is painful and the cure is in the pain. The pain won't kill you. The pain will kill the part of you that's trying to kill you. Well, that kind of reminds me of a common theme that came out of so many of these conversations. And there have been people on here, <clears throat> numerous people on here that have been, you know, next to the gun. The gun's been in the mouth. Some of them even pulled the trigger and the firing pin never went off. But then I've also you know, had well, people. I know, hold on. Stop, stop. We got to listen, people. You got to stop telling that story because otherwise I'm going to lose confidence in the ammunition that's being made in America. I have lost count of the number of people that have pulled back on dry ammo. Stop telling that story. It's enough that you're suicidal and you don't want to be here. You don't have to put a story on top of the story and tell people that I pulled the trigger and the gun didn't go off. I have had people sit in the spaces at Save a Warrior who have had their faces blown off and put back on. That person is suicidal. Suicidal people commit suicide. You are not suicidal if you're telling a story about pulling on a trigger and the gun went click. What you are is in a place of crisis where you don't want to live anymore and you don't know how to live anymore. But people who are suicidal, like truly suicidal, they commit suicide or they, they pull the trigger and it goes boom. And for whatever reason, the bullet didn't kill them. I've, I've encountered people like that and it's rare. The fact that you're suffering is enough and we don't have to, we don't have to, you know, over punctuate that. Thanks for letting me share that, James. But that's a big ticket item with me because when you're when you're telling dishonest stories, you're not going to get well. The truth is enough. Absolutely, no, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, it's it's that particular thing is hard to understand. Um, with that being said, Kevin Hines did jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, and Emma Benoit, it did go off, yeah. and now she's you know in a wheelchair for a lot of the time. But one of the the things that came out of that 
was a common denominator was and you're talking about this you know this this thought this it this this i is it had shifted from that innate thought of survival that we're all born with to this this obviously you know there's a lot of people want the pain to end but also this feeling of being a burden that's true true deep-seated belief that the world is better off without you and again you know resonating and paralleling what you've been saying you add in sleep deprivation and all these other the factors that just compound this. That was another stark realization to me because we have so much, you know, you hear so much about suicide being cowardly. Oh, you know, why could they do that? We had two police officers, a boyfriend, girlfriend that had an infant child. One took their life in Florida and then five days later, the other one did. So as a, you know, healthy mind, you're like, why could they do that? But that's the point. And as you were saying, you know, losing that battle with, with the side of you that's trying to kill you, that really resonated with me because that's what I hear reported from some of these men and women is that that very thing that kind of pushes you back away from the edge of a tall building, their brain gets so miswired that now that hand is behind them pushing them off. No, 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 your wife would be better off without you. No, no, you're an absolute piece of shit. And it's heartbreaking to hear that because you and I know that couldn't be further from the truth. But at that moment of crisis, you know, these people that truly, truly were there report that that was... That was their entire fucking reality at that moment. You know, there's an old saying in 12-step that says, if you kill yourself within the first five years of recovery, you killed the wrong person. There's some interesting paradoxical axiom, axioms and maxims in recovery. There's a lot of wisdom. You know, and all 12-step is, is Judeo-Christianity meets Zen Buddhism. So it, it, it comes from this antiquity. You don't know who you are. You, don't, you haven't yet declared yourself as your own identity, you, your identity, if you're listening and you're suicidal or you think you're suicidal or you're anxious or depressed, you have it somewhere inside of you based on what happened that you're defective, helpless and alone. And I, if I had the time, I'd go through the whole Forrest Gump film and I go through Castaway and I would talk about Zemeckis as a director and and how he brings these stories out in the myths, you know, versus the logos to describe what the human condition is here in the Western world. You know, Camus said, the, the only question worth asking is whether to commit suicide or not commit suicide. Alan Watts loves to talk about that. Look at Hamlet in Shakespeare, to be or not to be. What he's saying is, do I stay or do I go? Right? The Clash sang the song. It's the only question worth asking. Is the juice worth the squeeze? When you com- the, Anybody that commits suicide had it that they're defective, helpless, and alone, and they were misidentified. They were probably misdiagnosed and over-medicated, but misidentified that I made up, that who I am is shame, that I've got to cover it up and deny it so that I can survive, eat, turn food into poop, and then I've got to numb that because I've got to numb this backward way of being. We're not meant to get in at shame. We're meant to live our life from a place of being and and communion is an act or instance of sharing if you go back to the movie forrest gump the first thing he says to that woman on the bench would you like a chocolate an act or instance of sharing the second thing he says to her is those look like real comfortable shoes compassion where most people have shame he has compassion and those are two vertices of a triangle one at the top one at the lower right he gets in at being an actor instance of sharing, that's his communion, 
and the world has him as defective, helpless, and alone. Forrest Gump is never made up. He doesn't have this story that he's defective, helpless, and alone. And the red herring that the storyteller uses is when the school administrator says, Mrs. Gump, your son is different. So they fool you to tell you that we're going to show you a fully formed human being from the womb who's never going to collapse the vicious circle. So I talked about the top vertice is compassion. The lower right vertice is being. The lower left, in place of his denial, of his denial and his cover-up, his practice is his practice. And his practice is already always present. Forrest Gump loves three things, his mother, Jenny, and God. The only time he gets in trouble is the only person he has a story about, and that's Jenny. And every time he tries to impact her way of being, he gets himself in trouble. His mother, he loves his mother for who, who she is and who she isn't. Here's a little newsflash for your listener. Forrest Gump's mother, she's a hooker. She's running a whorehouse. You may have it as a boarding house, but when Forrest's mom needs to take care of business, she's not past throwing down to get that boy into a regular school system. That's not a one-off. So when Forrest encounters that administrator on the porch who says, you don't say much. And he goes, "Eh, eh, eh, eh," and he imitates the sounds of lust coming from his mother's bedroom. That's not the first time that young man has heard his mom uh, trade to get him uh, what he needs to get. So let's debunk that myth right there. But Forrest Gump doesn't have a story about his mom trading sex to get him where he needs to be in life. That's called survival. I don't have to have a story about that. The other thing he loves is God. Whatever his God is, is probably the present moment. Because if you look at him, if you look at him, you he looks like he's gazing. He's not. He's looking. He's constantly looking. Let's prove that again. He's in basic training. His drill sergeant cannot believe that he can function so highly, so readily, so proficiently, so in such a precise way because Gump is already always present. Jesus Christ, Gump, how did you reassemble that rifle so quickly? You told me to, Drill Sergeant. He can act in the moment, and that's why he lives in story such an extraordinary life because he doesn't make up stories about what happens save for one person in the world. And it's not until she makes amends to him later in the story for her own issues that they're able to have a connection. That is why Forrest Gump lives on for us as a story told in this culture. That's really, really key. If you're listening, you got to get that Forrest Gump lives his life in a direction of travel that causes a high degree of workability, a high degree of connectivity, a high degree of integrity, a high degree of spirituality. Why the hell do you think Lieutenant Dan comes down to be his partner on that fishing boat? Because despite the way Lieutenant Dan treats the character Forrest Gump, he has respect for the man because he is who he says he is. His word was he was going to get in the shrimping business. He made a promise to Bubba, who himself, the first time he meets Forrest Gump, hands him a handkerchief to dry his face off on that bus taking him to basic training. This is really key. This is really key. Spirit recognizes spirit. That's how those two find each other. There's, there's no agenda. There's no getting over. There's true connection. And he's found 
uh, a traveling partner, a fellow traveler. And even when that man passes, he continues on with his mission and the forces of the universe line up that he becomes a very successful shrimp captain and has all of the success in the world. Why? Because he lives his life in a direction of travel that he's meant to live. And the way they get us as an audience to buy in is the fact that his IQ is just above um, that of one who would be considered mentally incapacitated. Go back and watch Forrest Gump and see if I'm not telling you the truth. Because we show people at Save a Warrior how to properly watch and unpack certain films in the American canon. Because story listening is such a big part of our lives. We tell stories and we listen to stories. The idea is not to conflate the two. But if you want to see a character study of a statesman spirit in the American canon of cinema, you need look no further than the character of Forrest Gump. Everything you need to know about life is in that film. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, I've loved that film over and over again. But even- And you probably don't know why. I think the elements of it, but not the way you described it. Absolutely not. That's called real, real therapy, R-E-E-L therapy. We use that in a combination of psychodrama to put people in the skin of these characters when they're with us to have this lived and experience. But the most profound, but you got to get the director of Forrest Gump and Castaway is the same person. Robert Zemeckis has initiated more of us into adult philosophy as a possibility then he'll ever get credit for it. But that's what makes Robert Zemeckis such a brilliant artist is he has the power to transform our lives over the course of two to three hours. Great. Now, how do I take it out into the world? I've got to have a daily practice of good self-care. I've got to get out of these survival traits that are using my life to kill me. I've got to find myself in the right rooms of recovery and integration so that this practice begins to reverse my thinking and return me to love and the inherited distinctions of the domains of showing up are a possibility for me for most of my day. And people out there are thinking, what the fuck is he talking about? I'm talking about an adult philosophy that causes workability in every area of your life. There was a time in my life for a long period of time, my career ended 25 years ago because I said the wrong thing to the wrong person on the wrong day. And I spent as an FBI agent and I spent the next 15 years of my life trying to figure it the fuck out. Well, I'm giving you the life hack of all life hacks here. I'm handing you the keys to the Ferrari if you're listening out there. And all you have to do is go to saveawarrior.org, read through that website and see if it's not consistent with what I'm sharing with you here. Read some of the testimonials on our Facebook page. Find someone, find someone in our community that's been through this experience and ask them, did it change the quality of your life? Did it break you open in a hard hitting, impactful way and give you access to a world? Do they talk funny? What happened in those 72 hours? Is it, is that juice worth the squeeze? What have you got to lose? How's your weight working? How's, how's your relationship with him or her or the kids? How miserable are you? And then ask yourself this question. Are you done suffering? If you can't answer yes to that last question, I can't help you. If you're done suffering, it's amazing what we can unstick you from and move you in a direction where in a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, your life is unrecognizable. Why? Because it takes about a year per decade of life to rewire that fucked up thinking that's causing you to hate your life. 
regardless of all of the success you've garnered. Man, I got the house in the right neighborhood. I drive the right car. I've selected the right insurance policy. Holy shit, even in this downturn, my investments are holding. I'm getting ready to get some more promotion. I got this bitch and chick on the side. I got this unbelievable dude on the side. Whatever your story is, if you're out there and you're listening, if you're miserable, you're who I'm talking to. The rest of you, you know, I'm just, I just sound some, like some crazy dude getting burst transmissions from a satellite. But what the fuck do I care? I go to bed when I'm tired. I wake up when I'm done sleeping. I eat when I'm hungry. I have freedom in my life and full self-expression. Nobody censors me. I have a board of directors that has never once told me in 10 years, you can't do this. You can't say that. There's an integrity in my life today, and it doesn't look the way it did four and a half years ago. It's perfectly imperfect. I don't look at porn. I don't masturbate. Can you men out there say that? And I'm letting that land on them. Most of you, most of the men who come to this experience are profoundly addicted to porn and compulsive masturbation. You're shooting all the energy in your life out the end of your dick. You're using the wrong tubes to soothe and you don't know that you don't know that. And you're ashamed and you're embarrassed and you're frustrated and you're pissed off and you're moody because your therapist can't help you because you don't tell your therapist the truth. You give them some version of the truth and you don't want to be on all those meds because they make you loopy and now you can't even perform sexually. You're not having sex with your partner and you can't stand each other. You're who I'm talking to. You're the one I came back for because your life matters to me because your struggle gives my life purpose. And that is the bottom line. And you can make that mean whatever the hell you want to make it mean. Do I do this because I'm a good person? No, I do this because I got to eat. I got to turn food into poop. So I figured out what my purpose is. And my purpose is to come back for your rusty ass. And I don't get mine until you get yours. So you got to get yours first. So we're organized as a national center of excellence for you to get yours first. We're just going to talk straight to you and you're going to talk straight to us and we're going to do it in 72 continuous hours and you're either going to love it or you're going to love it to death, but it is absolutely going to transform your life. And when you walk out of here, the only question that matters is, am I going to do the work now to clarify this experience? There is no new information in our 500 day plan. When you leave Sable warrior, it clarifies what happened in those three days, and you're looking at about three or four years of consistent work, meditating, the spiritual footwork, and we give you access to all of those materials once you leave Sable Warrior. You don't pay for any of that. None of it. Well, for people listening, I'm sure they're intrigued. And I said, you know, I've said before, so many people I know have been through, so many people have come out the other side with, you know, as you said, with, with the 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 foot unpinned from the vicious circle and you know and, and each of their journeys out has been completely different some have had nothing but success some have had you know bumpy road but each and every one of them had a transformative experience when they were in it so for people listening they want to do it now tell me how they can you know move on from there and then tell me as far as geographically the senses that you have now okay so it's known as an intensive integrated retreat model. It is a thing. There's a thing. It, it exists in, in the world. There's an in-the-worldness about what we do. We just happen to do it in a very, very novel, hard-hitting way. You go to savealwarrior.org, read through the entire website. Um, if something there touches, moves, and inspires you, s- fill out the application, hit the submit button, and you will – in very short order, find yourself on a page to schedule 
an initial call with one of our rosterers who will have a discussion with you where you have a chance to see if this is a good fit for you because they're listening for certain openings that only you can get to with them. It's going to come down to honest, being honest, open, and willing, and even being willing to be honest, open, and willing. They're going to determine over the course of that call if there's parts of you that are available because I'm going to tell you this right now if you're listening. I am not going to debate you. I'm not going to sit across from you. I have 72 hours. I'm not going to debate you. Why? Because you don't have anything I want. And if you're thinking about killing yourself, you got to ask yourself, am I willing to let go of all of my ideas? See, I've been wrong about everything in life. Everything I've been wrong about. The jobs I chose, the places I went to school, the things I studied, my religious beliefs, whatever. The only thing I've been right about in 56 years is this experience called Save a Warrior. I'm willing to tell you that everything else I've been wrong about. This is the only thing where I have seen, quote unquote, success in my life, meaning that I've seen other people come here, let go of their fear and sadness and have a transformative experience and go out and over the next several months and years, do things in life they never thought were possible. And I celebrate and root for them and continue to. This is a community of practice. Out of 1,860 people, 70% are still connected to the community. That is an astonishing number over the course of a decade that 70% stay connected through the communities of practice. There's 25 meetings a week in the Save a Warrior Fellowship, all that have grown organically out of the community of practice. 70%. So there's a very high likelihood that if you come here, over time, you will eventually do the bucket work to clarify the initial experience. Nothing I tell you will prepare you for those 72 hours because I am not within your interiority. You as the listener, only you know what you're struggling with. Only you know what happened. Only you know what you're covering up. Only you know what your non shareable problems are. All of those things have a chance to be processed and transformed here. And there are things that you don't know that you don't know that are going to be processed and transformed here. This conversation is not for everyone. If you're done suffering, we're worth a look. And I want you to hear this the right way again. I will not debate you and hear this the right way because when you argue with a fool, who's the fool? We have 181 cohorts under our belt over a 10-year period. There is no other organization, none, not one in this country that you will ever come to devoid of transaction that will take you where we'll take you and leave you where we leave you. And we will support the work you have to do when you leave here. We will offer you accountability partners and coaches to get you through the first 100 days of that 500-day experience. We are not going to leave you at the bus stop, but hear this too the right way. Be willing to change everything about the way you think about life. Because if you're listening and this is resonating for you, there's parts of you, big parts of you that do not live in reality. You think you live in reality. And we will show you and demonstrate to you in a very profound, hard-hitting, breaking open kind of a way that parts of you don't know your ass from a hole in the ground. And it's not your fault. However, it is your responsibility to take this on if you want to heal and we will shepherd you through that entire experience. Why? Because it gives our team purpose. I'm not interested in meaning. You want meaning? Read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It will not make a difference in your life. It will not move the needle. 
What makes a difference in our life is doing things we don't want to do because people who came before us did them and it transformed our lives and they came back for us. Why? Because you've got to give it away to keep it and you've got to do it for fun and for free. The end. <laughs> well, Jake, again, here we are two hours later. Another two hours amazing- and 15 minutes. Two yep. hours and 15 minutes. And I could go till midnight. Why? <laughs> the vitality. Because some things in life are worth staying up two or three days for. When was the last time you had that kind of vitality? Dude, I'm on three hours of sleep, man. I'm on fire. I don't need a sleep when I'm dead. People talk about when do you sleep? I sleep when I'm dead. And I don't take meds. And I meditate. And I go to meetings. And I have a sponsor. And I have a fellow traveler. So this vulnerability, accountability, coachability, yes, there are men in life that can pull my man card and ask me, you looking at porn? No. You masturbating? No. Are you doing this? Well, what are we talking about? <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I can tell you this. My Google search history doesn't look like yours. I can tell you that. I can, I'll bet you everything I have. And my credit scores are in the high sevens and I got money in the bank and I was a guy who used to pay his bills as a police officer and an FBI agent. My, my credit was, was shit and I couldn't keep a job and I had no functional workability in my life. And I, if telling, I'd lie if telling the truth would get me out of trouble. So yeah, my life was a shit show until about five years ago. Divorce was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because again, my ex-wife said to me, babe, either give up the behavior or stop being ashamed of it. I didn't know that was an option. So if you're out there listening, you don't have to be ashamed. No matter what you are or who you are or what you're doing, we're going to show you how to do less of that, how to reduce these things until some power greater than yourself, when you're ready and willing, will take these things out of your life. And, and it will get to a point where it's seemingly effortless. It just sorts itself out in the normal course of your living. Why? Because you have no context to hold the things in your life that are causing you problems. Rather, you live in a condition, and it's called a vicious circle, and we will show you how to disappear those parts of your life that are causing you to think about hurting yourself. We will help you. We will put you in a situation to call forth and generate this domain of being where you begin to identify. For me, it's my word, being of service, being vigilant, and being a leader. Those are the only four things that matter to me. Now I'm in the declarative space. I'm in the third part of the game. The fourth piece is the integrative piece where you work that 500-day plan. You come back for other people. You have a community of people who accept you for who you are and who you're not. They don't have your last name. They're not trying to leverage and weaponize your vulnerabilities against you. And you learn to have faith and trust in certain people that are safe for you. That's what we're offering you in this community of practice. Again, 70% stickiness. We're not for everyone. Not, and it's not because they're not worthy. They're just not ready to give up the story and they're not done suffering. That was the PS. Perfect. Love it. Well, mate, I mean, again, like I said, it's been an amazing conversation, you know, seeing the journey that you've been through the last four years and, and the different conversation that we're having now versus episode 63 in there yeah compare them i tell go back and listen to 63 before you listen to this one and and my voice probably sounds different and i want to tell your listener this that, that seat costs minimum 3500 dollars. we go out and beg for that money we beg for that money you don't pay for that that's our regard for you that's part of our purpose driven mission in life we're we're not asking you for that there are ways to pay that forward if you choose to and you should 
as a spiritual practice. We should pay for the things that add value and quality to our life. That's just an opinion I have. I could be wrong. Maybe I heard that wrong. But, but yeah, I'm on fire when we get to this part of the conversation. But we beg. I'm a beggar. So if you're listening today, you've been listening to a beggar. And the only difference between me and that guy you're going to jam at the corner of the off-ramp, Mr. Police Officer, is what I do with the money that people give it to me. I'm not sticking it up my nose or shooting it up my arm or drinking it down my gullet. And I have tremendous compassion for the beggars because they taught me how to beg. But you're listening to a beggar. Now, wait for it. You're listening to a seven-figure beggar who over the last four and a half years has begged up with a lot of help from some really good people, almost $20 million to spend on you, to put you through this experience, because it's not free. There's a lot of costs that go into creating this context for you to come in and have this experience. So yeah, we beg for this money. So again, your mind goes to, I wonder what they do with that money. What's the catch? That's your thinking working on you. That's why your life doesn't work. Because you can't not think those thoughts. You don't trust anyone because you don't trust yourself. Why? Because you live dishonestly. I didn't say it was bad. I just said it's limited. So if you're tired of living in that place of spiritual dishonesty, we may have something for you. If not, keep looking. There is a conversation out there with your name on it. But for most people who come here, transformation is possible. Well, again, I just want to thank you. Such an amazing conversation. Thank as you. you said, you know, Come surpassing see it. two Come hours. Come see it, James. Come sit in the seat, bro. Well, I do. I, mean, I need to. I told you my, my wife's from Ohio originally, so, you know, I, I have to get my ass up there at some point. But uh, I just want to thank you so much. I mean, such an invaluable conversation. You've truly spoken to, directly to people listening to this. So I hope that the people out there that feel like they are ready to hit submit on, on that form will hit stop on this interview and then go straight to the website and start this process. Give yourself permission to have the courage and courage is from the Latin root cur, which means to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. Give yourself permission. And if you can't, you can borrow mine or borrow James. James is a very courageous man to unpack these conversations. Give yourself permission to have the courage to heal. The reason we don't do the work is we, it's not because you're not brave. You wearing that uniform, you have, involved yourself in untold acts of bravery over the course of your career. Courage is an entirely different thing. Give yourself permission as a possibility to have the courage to go onto that website and see what's there, fill out that application, hit the submit button, and at least have the conversation with the rosterer who works for us, who's very good at listening to what you got going on for you internally. And then if you do come through the experience, Continue to give yourself permission to have the courage to do the work. It takes tr- – you want to know why you don't heal? Hear this the right way. Right now, you don't have the courage. You can borrow some of ours until you find your own. I was a guy in 12-step who kicked the tires for 20 years. When I started coming back for others in the margins, in the white space of my calendar, and taking people through the life, taking people through the work, my life transformed. Every area of my life transformed. I didn't say I was perfect. But I live a perfectly imperfect life today, and I ain't worried about the other shoe falling. I ain't worried about people finding shit out about me. I I share generally what's going on for me with safe people. It's not a perfect solution, but it might be perfect for you. And I'm going to end it with that, James. Thank you. Thank you.